Welcome to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and community. This is your host, Ari Armstrong. Music by Jordan Smith, cjsclassical.com. Please join my email list for updates or help support the show financially at ariarmstrong.com. Our guest today is Mark Silverstein, an attorney with the ACLU of Colorado. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for being on. Sure. Thanks for inviting me. Our topic today is primarily your rights when interacting with the police. Just by way of background, Mark Silverstein graduated from the Illinois College of Law in 1989. He joined the ACLU of Southern California in 1991 and became legal director of the ACLU of Colorado in 1996. Quick disclaimer, although Mark Silverstein is an attorney, I am not. Our discussion here is not intended as specific legal advice for anyone's concrete legal issues. For specific questions, people should consult a qualified attorney, so please don't consider this personal legal advice. So the main topic that I wanted to get into today pertains to police detentions and Terry frisks. And part of the context here, of course, is are the protests following the police killing of George Floyd. And here in Colorado, the police killing of Elijah McClain in Aurora. And recently in one of my columns at Complete Colorado, I made the argument that police did not have and did not, did not articulate reasonable suspicion in their detention of McClain. We can talk about that later. And, uh, but it's important that to acknowledge that this is it's a complex area of law. It's an ambiguous area of law. And often we're talking about instances where split-second decisions are involved, which adds to the complexity of it. So let's start pretty broadly here. What is the basis of a lawful detention? What is the basis of a lawful Terry frisk? And what is the relationship between a detention and a frisk? Okay, sure. So the name Terry Frisk comes from a 1968 U.S. Supreme Court case, Terry versus Ohio. And it was in that case where the Supreme Court said that uh, the Fourth Amendment, which, um, which forbids unreasonable seizures and is usually uh, applied to measure the reasonableness or the constitutionality of an arrest. The Fourth Amendment also applied to short temporary detentions that were short of a full-scale arrest. And while an arrest requires probable cause to believe that a particular person has committed a particular crime, these short temporary detentions require something less than probable cause. They require facts amounting to reasonable suspicion that the person to be stopped or temporarily detained um, is uh, involved in criminal activity, about to be involved in criminal activity, or has just committed a crime. And on the basis of these facts that amount to only reasonable suspicion, the Fourth Amendment allows a police officer to temporarily um, make a uh, short-term uh, interference with a person's freedom for the purpose of uh, asking a few questions, doing some brief investigation uh, to confirm or dispel the suspicions. So um, that's what you need for a Terry stop or a lawful detention. But the Terry versus Ohio case uh, also uh, legalized not just stops, but also frisks, and it's called the stop and frisk case. So when an officer is engaged in one of these short temporary detentions, if the officer also has additional facts that provide reasonable suspicion that the person uh, he is speaking with is armed and potentially dangerous, then the police officer can conduct a limited form of a search. Um, and that's limited to just a pat down of the outer clothing with the idea that a pat down of the outer clothing could reveal whether there's a revolver uh, or a knife or something like that concealed in the clothing. Uh, and then if the pat-down reveals something that feels like it could be a gun, uh, the officer 
then can actually reach into the pockets and temporarily confiscate the weapon. Uh, and the purpose, the purpose of that allowance of a frisk is uh, to preserve the safety of the officer uh, when engaging in what could be a potentially dangerous encounter, um, seeking to dispel or confirm the suspicions that crime might be afoot. So that seems like a difficult thing to determine because from an officer's point of view, I mean, anybody they encounter could be armed. And if it's a concealed weapon, which is what we're talking about, I mean, I don't, I don't see how an officer would distinguish between knowing that, well, this person, I have reason to frisk this person and not that person. So what are the particulars that could trigger legally an officer's ability to do this frisk without running afoul of the law? Well, uh, of course, uh, the devil's in the details, and I don't know that uh, we could furnish a complete list, but examples of when an officer would have um, would have facts that amount to suspicion, not just a not just a hunch, but facts could be um, the officer saw something that um, looked like the person uh, was uh, putting a gun in his pocket, or uh, the officer. Uh, had information from an informer that the person to be questioned was armed or, or the officers responding to a 9-11 call and the, uh, the facts provided provide some indication, uh, some support for the suspicion that the person may be armed. Okay, yeah, that makes sense then. So next I want to turn to the articulated part of this business. Do police officers have a legal responsibility to articulate or explain their reasonable suspicion that is the, behind their detention? And if so, when do they have to do that? And then related, just as a practical matter, if a police officer comes upon someone who is actually totally innocent, isn't the officer going to be able to solicit greater cooperation by articulating the reasonable suspicion? So I'm interested in sort of the legal aspect of it, but then also just the on-the-ground on the practical aspect of an officer explaining why they're doing what they're doing. Um, I, I couldn't agree with you more that a lot of uh, escalations of conflict, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of uh, um, uh, disintegration of police community trust uh, is, uh, could be alleviated if officers simply explained um, why they're doing what they're doing. Um, but they... They don't have a legal responsibility to articulate uh, the facts amounting to reasonable suspicion. Um, and the question about when is it that they have to articulate it, um, uh, it seems that they only have to articulate it when they are being challenged um, and the, the, the stop or the frisk is already in the past. So it might come up uh, in the context of a criminal case or it might come up in the context of uh, a case where somebody says, hey, you, you, you interfered with my freedom, you interfered with my, uh, you violated my bodily integrity, putting your hands on me, and that violated the Constitution. And then the officer would have to uh, explain the facts. Or perhaps a citizen complaint filed with the police um, could prompt an internal affairs investigation where the officer might be called upon to explain the facts. Um, uh, at the ACLU, we have, uh, we have long advocated that police should have to document the facts that amount to reasonable suspicion in some kind of report that is reviewed by a supervisor. Because uh, without such a report, supervisors uh, don't have any way of knowing whether their officers are conducting legal Terry stops and frisks uh, or whether they um, are simply uh, stopping people on the basis of hunches that don't amount to, that don't meet the legal standard. Um, we've had only limited success so far in Colorado uh, advocating for this requirement, but there are other jurisdictions that have adopted a stricter reporting requirement on officers conducting these stops. Um, and now the new statute enacted by the Colorado legislature this summer 
is requiring more documentation uh, in these Terry stops, uh, but they don't, the law doesn't specifically require the officer to document the facts that, that the officer believes justified the intervention. Okay, so just to clarify, let's say I'm just minding my own business, but I'm in a public area on a sidewalk or whatever. But a police officer, for some reason, thinks that I may have some relationship to some criminal activity. The police officer comes upon me. And in the officer's mind, the officer thinks that the officer has the reasonable basis to detain me. Um, but I'm not aware of what he's thinking. If, I, if, he, if he comes upon me and I say, why are you hassling me? I didn't do anything wrong. You're saying that the officer, at that, even at that point, does not have a legal obligation to explain to me the reasonable, the, the basis of the, of the detention. He can just detain me and then, uh, but, but the, even though the officer is supposed to have at least mentally in mind what that basis is. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I, I think that's right. And of course, the, the detention then is for the purpose of investigating his suspicions. So while he's temporarily detaining you, he should be asking some questions. And of course, uh, uh, if you're not getting an explanation of why you're being asked these questions, you, you might not feel like giving uh, uh, helpful answers. Well, and that, that goes to the practical nature of it. I mean, it, it's true. I think police officers are often jaded because a lot of people they deal with aren't very nice people. They deal with a lot of bad people, whereas in my normal life, I don't deal with a lot of bad people. But the fact is that they can, do and can come across people who are totally innocent. They just have the wrong person or the, what, what the officer thinks is going on isn't actually going on. Mm -hmm. So as a practical matter, I mean, unless there's an immediate danger to the officer, it just seems to make so much sense that the officer is going to get greater cooperation if he says, look, here's why I'm stopping you. I got a 911 call. Suspect matches your description. I need your cooperation just to clear you, right? Just something simple like that is going to, if, if I'm the one being confronted, it's going to put me at ease. It's going to make me aware that the officer has legitimate business interacting with me. And it's going to make me a lot more prone to cooperate. For one thing, I want to get out of the situation and then I want the officer to get on with his business of actually catching the real suspect. So it just seems like it'd be nice to, to encourage a police culture where the actual articulation is a routine part of the confrontation whenever feasible. I mean, obviously if someone's actively reaching for a gun, okay, the officer is not going to spend the time, you know, <laughs> to articulate their reasonable suspicion at that time. Mm -hmm. But, but in many cases, it's just literally a person walking or sitting there or something like that. And there's no immediate, there's no, there's no immediate time pressure here. So I don't, I don't see why this isn't just the norm. And, and, and certainly I think that there are officers, there, there are situations where that happens. Um, but there are certainly plenty of situations where it doesn't happen. And so just to clarify, so we always hear that if, I, if I'm not sure whether I'm being detained, if I just ask, am I free to go? At that point, that will trigger a response by the officer that should, that should give me a clear indication of whether I'm actually being detained. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, that's, that's right. The problem for somebody who is um, uh, detained by a police officer is is the person doesn't actually know if they're detained or whether it's what the law calls a consensual encounter. And um, the consequences to the, to the person can be di different depending on whether the officer has reasonable suspicion or doesn't have reasonable suspicion. Uh, but the person uh, doesn't get to find out. <laughs> but just to clarify, right, if I ask an officer, am I free to go? And the officer says no, then the officer is signaling legally that the, in the officer's mind, the officer does have reasonable suspicion to detain me. Is right. that the case? Okay. No, that, that's right. That, that if, means the officer believes that he has reasonable suspicion. But of course, that doesn't mean that he actually does have reasonable suspicion. So uh, if, if someone then uh, declines to, uh, say, provide their identity, um, uh, you are free to, uh, the officer wants to know who you are. Um, if, if you're not being detained, you do not have to respond. If the officer has reasonable suspicion to believe 
um, to reasonable suspicion to institute a temporary detention, then it's possible that the refusal to provide identification or to identify yourself um, can actually be a crime, but it's not a crime if the officer is wrong about having reasonable suspicion. Okay, and, so <laughs> so let me let me run through this scenario then. If an officer comes up and says and asks me a question like "Who are you?" or something, mm-hmm. I can ask him. I'm 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 legally allowed to ask him at that point. Am I free to go? Mm-hmm. And at that point, if the officer says no, I'm detaining you for reasonable for whatever. Wh- who are you? At that point, I'm legally required to tell to tell the officer who I am. Is that what, part of what you're saying? Well, I said it can be a crime because this this comes. Um, uh, in another gray area, there was a Supreme Court case um, uh, about 10 or 15 years ago out of Nevada where somebody refused to provide ID, um, but there was a Nevada statute that made it a crime to fail to provide ID in those situations. Um, and the Supreme Court said, in this case, the officer was conducting a voluntary stop and so the person uh, was violating the statute, and uh, it was upheld that the person uh, could be prosecuted for failing to identify himself. Um, in Colorado, I'm not aware of any such statute. So if an officer says, please identify yourself, and you stay silent, I don't know under what law um, the person can be prosecuted. I mean, offhand, I mean, I don't see, just as a practical matter, that seems like a minimum amount of information that I would probably feel free sharing with an officer. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, an officer might have an actual name of a suspect, and then they would know, oh, my name either matches or doesn't, Um, at least the name I say. And so as a practical matter, I'm not seeing any problem of providing personal identification is there any kind of practical concern there? Yeah, I think I think many people have no problem, uh, you know, uh, revealing their name uh, to a police officer. But uh, we actually have a case out of Colorado Springs in which police officers made a Terry stop. Um, we believe that the Terry stop was unjustified; uh, that it was a case of racial profiling. Um, the the police did have a description of someone they were looking for in the area, and our client um, did not meet that description, except it is true they were looking for an African-American juvenile, and our client is an African-American 29-year-old. But at any rate, our client um, just remained silent and did not respond when the officers asked him to identify himself. And so they handcuffed him, and then they asked him again, and they asked him again, and he didn't speak. And so then they conducted a frisk, pulled out his wallet, his wallet, got his identification. Um, meanwhile, uh, the other officers were saying, no, that's not the guy. That's not him. <laughs> um, so uh, we actually um, are litigating this question of whether the police officers um, conducted an involuntary stop because of racial bias, uh, conducted an invalid frisk, and um, conducted an illegal search, uh, reaching into the our client's pockets um, and getting his wallet. And after they identified him, then they uh, eventually let him go. What would you think of this? It seems like this could be an area for some legislative clarity. So just off the top of my head, the law could say if it's a voluntary interaction, you do not have to tell the cops anything. If the reasonable, if the police officer does have a reasonable suspicion, then you, the legislature could say, well, look, the, the police officer has to actually articulate the reasonable suspicion to the suspect. And at that point, the suspect is required to tell the officer his identity. Would you just offhand would some would would some kind of legislative clarity do you think help in these kinds of cases? More legislative clarity uh, could certainly help. That would be uh, interesting, though. Sometimes I fear that uh, it's one thing for us to write the laws, um, uh, you know, uh, 
pass legislation, pass uh, adopt policies by police departments. Um, but yet, what uh, sometimes there's a gap between the written policy of a police department, even the formal training, and what actually goes on in the street. So, well, this is a general problem with policing: is that if it's if the standards are too loose, then police can we're just giving police license to come up with whatever cockamamie story they can think of at the time to justify whatever they want to do. Yep. I mean, oh my gosh, I saw him put a bag in his pocket, and I thought that it might have drugs in it, or any anything. I mean, there, there's there there if it's loose enough, there's no circumstance that an officer could not rationalize their uh, their detention after the fact. So it does seem like there have to be some real standards or we're just literally going to have cops stopping whomever they want, whenever they want, and then coming up with some kind of BS rationalization after the fact. So I think that's the general concern. So I mentioned the case of Elijah McLean here in Colorado. Mm -hmm. Do you want to ha to comment about the police stop of McLean? Because, well, I, I imagine you've watched some of the video and I've watched some of the video about around that. And I have my own thoughts about that. And I was wondering if you cared to share your thoughts about that. Well, I actually haven't watched any video, but I read your column that you sent to me before, um, before we got together for this conversation. And from the facts uh, as reported in that column, I completely agree that the police officers did not have grounds to institute um, a lawful detention. Um, uh, the police, you quoted the police officer saying, um, uh, you're suspicious, or I've got a call that you're suspicious. He said you're being uh, suspicious. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. That's, that, that, that's not a fact. That's not a fact that shows, um, that raises a suspicion uh, that someone's involved in crime. That's a, that's a label for somebody's conclusion. And just for background for readers, for listeners who may not have read much about this case, this was the summer of 2019, so this was pre-pandemic. And it seems like the main reason that officers stopped McLean and the main reason that someone called 9-11 to report McLean was simply that McLean was wearing a mask on a summer evening. Now, his sister said he wore the mask because he had anemia and would get cold. Of course, the officers had no reason to know that at the time. But it seems clear that officers approached McLean mainly because he was wearing a mask and was in a dangerous part of town, as the district attorney's report also indicated. So th those, those seem to be the two main elements, dangerous part of town, McLean was wearing a mask. Don't forget also, um, McLean is a young African-American male, and the DA statement that he was in a high crime area, or some words to that effect, is notoriously um, in in Fourth Amendment litigation, it's notoriously uh, like a code word for saying uh, an area uh, inhabited by many people of color. Well, this is this to me when we were talking about maybe making a, a more formal requirement for police to articulate their suspicion. To me, this is a case where this would have helped. Because if the officer knew that it actually, to actually detain McLean, he had to actually explain to McLean why he was detaining him, the officer then would have maybe realized he didn't actually have a reason. He's like, well, you're wearing a mask. So what? Wearing a mask is not a crime. Am I free to go? Uh, well, then what's the officer going to say at that point? You know, oh, no, I think you're, you know, it's the this invisible crime of wearing a mask. So at that point, if the officer had actually gone to the trouble of trying to explain the basis of the stop, I think it would have been readily apparent to everyone that there was no reason. Um, and that would have helped a lot. And then maybe that would have given the officer a little bit of a, a gut check to think to himself, well, <laughs> you know, what am I doing here exactly? And how much do I want to escalate this situation? Certainly, if the officer knew, oh, in, you know, in, in 15 seconds, I'm going to have to articulate facts that justify detention, perhaps that would help. Or if the officer knew he was going to have to write a report for his supervisor to read that documented facts that amount to reasonable suspicion. But independent of a need to explain to someone or write a report, an officer's training tells him that he needs to have facts that amount to reasonable suspicion before interfering with somebody's liberty. 
Well, I think this goes to some sort of broader police reform issues. First of all, you need to have cops who are basically good people and reasonable people and not just Rambo wannabes who are, you know, quick to throw somebody to the ground or pull their gun or whatever. So that's number one. And then there needs to be a police culture and a culture of training where it's just continually reinforced. Oh, yeah, people have right of a free expression. Oh, yeah, I have to have some actual reason before I detain somebody. I mean, it seems like this should it seems like these are often afterthoughts in police departments. And it seems like they should always be front and center in an officer's mind. And that that to me goes to a kind of a, a deeper problem of political of police culture. So I guess we can talk more. I do have some questions about reform we can get into more later. There's certainly problems with police culture. Um, and, you know, most police officers learn, you know, they learn some stuff in the academy and then they get out in the real world and they have a field training officer who's an older, more experienced veteran who shows the, the newer cop, oh, here's how it really works. And in that way, the, the culture is perpetuated despite what they say in the academy. So previously, to shift gears a bit, you mentioned that there's the main difference between a detention and arrest in terms of the evidentiary basis is reasonable suspicion versus probable cause. But I want to talk about some of the details of, you know, how does a person actually tell that an arrest is being executed? Does the use of handcuffs automatically constitute an arrest or can police use handcuffs temporarily just for a detention? Um, and again, I mean, I guess if an officer says, what does an officer say? You're under arrest. Is that usually the trigger that lets me know <laughs> I'm going downtown? Believe it or not, this is another um, somewhat confusing area of the law. Um, so uh, there are certainly cases where courts have said, yes, despite the fact that uh, the person was handcuffed, uh, it was not it was not an arrest at that point. Um, and there are also cases that say that um, when a detention lasts too long, uh, that effectively becomes an arrest. And that means the police needed more than reasonable suspicion. They needed probable cause. Uh, and then uh, courts will look at uh, a number of factors sometimes when trying to decide, well, was this a detention that needed only reasonable suspicion or was this actually an arrest where police needed uh, a higher evidentiary basis? And one factor that can sometimes contribute to the conclusion that it was an arrest is the use of handcuffs. But sometimes courts have said that uh, a particularly dangerous situation when police have grounds to temporarily, temporarily detain someone, they can use handcuffs as part of their uh, legitimate need to protect themselves while carrying out their duties. Okay. So I guess one thing I could do if I'm the one being c confronted by police is simply ask, am I under arrest? And at that point, a, a police officer needs to tell you whether you're under arrest, right? I think that there will be times when whether you are under arrest is like a legal, uh, uh, it's a legal question that's determined by how much is your freedom of movement um, curtailed um, is uh, uh, like, let's see, how can I explain this? Sometimes uh, uh, somebody can say, I was arrested, uh, even though they were released later, they're saying that detention was so prolonged that it counts as an arrest and police may have had reasonable suspicion, but they didn't have probable cause. Nevertheless, they arrested me, even though uh, even though they let me go finally, it was an arrest and it was illegal because they didn't have enough grounds for an arrest. Okay. Would you like to say anything about, beyond what's legally required, just practical considerations if someone is being approached by police? In terms of, I have the idea that I should just, you know, make sure I show the police my hands, you know, not reach into my pockets, things like that. And then there's, there's this oddity among, again, going to police culture, that a lot of police officers will just immediately, if they know that they're going to physically confront a person, they'll just immediately start saying, stop resisting, stop resisting. And this is a way to 
beforehand rationalize any use of possible force against the person. Mm-hmm. So given the realities on the ground, what can a person do practically just to signal to the police, look, I'm not really a danger to you, and try to de-escalate the situation as much as possible and kind of <laughs> refocus the officer's mind a little bit on the person's rights and their legal their legal obligations? Um, I don't know how much practical advice I can really provide, but it seems that um, it seems that one of the things that really uh, a lot of um, excessive force or escalated encounters develop when police perceive that someone is somehow questioning the police officers or challenging their authority. So acting meek, docile, um, uh, totally cooperative, do what the officer says, uh, comply with even unreasonable requests. Um, uh, that that might uh, um, provide a greater chance of safety, uh, even at the expense, perhaps, of uh, your you know your feelings of integrity. That's a hard one because. You know, I do think that as part of a our constitutional republican system of government, we have some kind of, I won't say duty, some kind of at least minimal responsibility to protect our system of individual rights. So it really rubs me the wrong way to sort of be more docile than I'm le- legally required to be. At the same time, we want people to be safe in a one-off interaction. Um, and then obviously the other side of the issue here is that some people are simply a lot more prone due to who they are, whether it's a racial thing or whether it's a class thing of being abused by police. I mean, I've never been abused by a police officer. I've been, you know, let's just say I haven't always been perfectly polite in my interactions with police officers. And I never once crossed my mind that I needed to be afraid for my safety during an interaction with a police officer. Now, and but I realized that if, you know, if I looked different than how I look, I would, I would have a lot more to be worried about. Now, I mean, and, and Ari, what, what you're talking about is what, you know, uh, you know, is what, you know, we used to call white skin privilege. It is, um, you can mouth off to cops and you will be, you have, you have a much greater chance of being safe and, uh, a person of color, a person from the other side of the tracks, um, if we still had railroad tracks, um, is uh, is not uh, is taking much much more of a risk. That again goes to police culture, and it again goes to the idea that a police officer needs to prepare to de- to meet his legal responsibilities and his moral responsibilities, regardless of the conduct of the person that they're interacting with, whether that person is totally innocent of any crime or actually guilty of a crime. So it's it's hard. I mean, I don't. I'm not going to pretend that it's easy to be a police officer. Some, in some cases, officer, it's a very harrowing job. Officers really are in a lot of danger. There are police officers who get killed on the job in this country every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is a tough job. But at the same time, it's a kind of job where you need to maintain the, the mental point of view, the, the psychological soundness to treat people like human beings and not go on these mad power trips where you're just hurting people for no good reason. I hope that we can reach a situation where that is the norm, what I'm describing, where police officers act appropriately, regardless of whether the suspect acts appropriately, without us having to worry about people being hurt or killed for really poor reasons or no reason at all. So I guess that's just, sorry, another micro commentary. It's just, it's frustrating to me that it's, you know... 2020 and we're still still have to have these conversations every day um yes indeed um and certainly these conversations um about uh uh police officers uh abusing uh citizens uh in the course of uh exercising their their duties has been going on uh as as long as I've been an adult, which is, uh, I mean, we're, uh, before I, uh, before I went to law school, I was, uh, a reporter where 
Um, I, a lot of the stuff that I did as a reporter was interviewing people uh, who, uh, and telling their stories of what happened uh, in their encounters with police. So I was sort of reporting on police misconduct before uh, I uh, was able to uh, get the tools and the certification to uh, try to do more to challenge police misconduct by going to court. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. So it sounds like your work as a journalist actually influenced your direction in law. Yeah. Oh, most assuredly. Hmm. Where did you work as a reporter? I worked for an alternative paper in uh, in Illinois. So I want to sh- shift briefly to traffic stops. Is every traffic stop automatically at attention? Yes. Okay. So we're ob- we're obligated to share additional information when we're in our vehicle. So license insurance. Mm-hmm. Is it license insurance registration in Colorado? Three things. I I, th- I think so. I I don't actually know for sure, but that certainly sounds familiar. Um, what about searches? So it, it, is this true? Just as in your home, a police officer cannot search your car without a warrant. And so if a police officer asks to search your car, you should say no, no, until they have a warrant. Is that your read? Um, well, uh, I might modify that. Um, the, um, the Supreme court has like for a century now, uh, has said that, um, you don't have the same rights of privacy in a vehicle as you do in your home. Uh, and also, uh, the, uh, because a vehicle is mobile, um, police officers actually have more ability to conduct searches without a warrant um, than they would uh, for places where, um, you know, for a house or a location that doesn't move. Um, so, um Police need a warrant to search your home, um, but and the warrant requires probable cause. But uh, to get a warrant, the probable cause has to be evaluated by someone other than the police, by a judge. Um, but a vehicle can be searched upon probable cause uh, without a warrant, which means the police officer is the one who decides for himself whether he has probable cause to, to conduct a search. Okay. As a practical matter, though, no one should ever voluntarily consent to a search if there is no probable cause. In other words, if the police officer says, can I search your car, you can and should say no. If the police officer says, I have probable cause to search your car, then you should let, definitely let him do it at that point. And then if you want to take it up legally later, then do that. Yeah. That and it? I think it it could maybe help for the record to say, uh, I'm not consenting to the search. Okay. So if the officer is going to insist that it's on probable cause, um, you don't want to consent to that search because then the cop can later say, well, I thought I had probable cause, but then the person consented anyway. So it's legal uh, based on consent. And this is, again, a kind of a meta point. But, you know, people who are listening to this are already interested in the issue. And I definitely suggest to people that they think about these things a little bit beforehand so that they are, sort of know what to expect and know how to behave. But it's too bad that our legal system doesn't work as well for people who don't know much about the law, who don't have much experience, who never think about these things beforehand. So, yeah, let's educate ourselves and assert our rights and know how to respond appropriately. But it's also like, you know, police need to make allowances for people who who don't have a podcast where they're talking to the lead attorney for the state ACLU who don't know as much about these things. And so, you know. You know, uh, one of my... uh Memories. I, I taught um, uh, a criminal procedure at uh, the DU Law School one semester, and that's mostly about the Fourth Amendment search and seizure. And uh, when we came to the subject of consent to a search, uh, and I remember one student saying, I had no idea you don't have to consent to a search. I'm going to tell all my friends. <laughs> and I thought, wow, a second-year law student even thought she had to consent to a search. Well, okay. Well, that's why we're doing this podcast. One reason. <laughs> um, when can an officer pull you out of your car? Um, I believe that the Supreme Court has said that uh, on a valid traffic stop, a police officer can ask 
the occupants to step out of the car without needing any additional facts. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. So it wouldn't be unusual. They don't need anything beyond what they initially pulled you over for to actually ask you to get out of the car. Is that what you're saying? Okay. So it could be a broken, so they could ask you to get out of your car if there was a broken taillight or whatever. Yep. Okay. I did not, I did not know that. And then if the police officers have um, reasonable suspicion uh, that would justify a search, they can search the whole passenger compartment of the car. Okay. And the trunk? No, the trunk is separate. They would need probable cause for the trunk. Oh, okay. But if, um, they, if they find something when they're searching the passenger compartment, then that will move from reasonable suspicion if they find some contraband, then there's probable cause that there's contraband in the car. And then they would have the ability to say, okay, now we're going to search the whole car. Okay. Um, again, you know, this is the kind of thing that seems to be applied very unevenly. Like it never even crossed my mind. An officer might pull me out of my car unless I was suspected of drunk driving or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like, obviously they're going to pull you out to do a roadside test or something. But I didn't know that they had just this general ability to pull you out of your car. So, but obviously, it seems like some people are going to get it pulled out of their car, and some people aren't. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and so, that's, that's why, um, you know, one, one of the uh, pieces of the new legislation in Colorado is, is requiring uh, officers to provide more detailed reports about every, every contact, every traffic stop, and then the law enforcement agencies will have to report that data to a state agency and it will be, uh, it will be public. It's going to take a couple of years before that database uh, is established, if I am remembering right. But one thing that I think is not in the law uh, is um, uh, whether police officers ask people to step out of the car. Okay. So maybe that needs to be added. So practically speaking, I have the idea that that if an officer pulls me over, I should have my paperwork ready, have my hands on the steering wheel. I think some of my friends who have concealed carry permits also include their concealed carry permit in their package. I don't think that's legally required, but I think they do it as a practical matter. Do you have any other um, practical words of wisdom for people navigating a traffic stop? Uh, I don't. uh, I don't. Okay. And I've also heard the bit where you don't have to roll your window down the whole way. You can just roll it down part of the way. So I guess people can think about all those things and maybe do some additional research. So what is the deal? So in Colorado, we have a specific law pertaining to an officer's business card passed some years ago. Mm-hmm. What is When can you ask for an officer's business card in Colorado? Well, you can always ask. Um, that's free speech. Um, but uh, I believe that the law uh, says that when the officer does a traffic stop and does not issue a citation or a ticket, then the officer is required to provide the business card. Do you know if that only pertains to traffic incidents or is it just on the street if they approach me on the sidewalk? I don't know offhand. Okay. I'll, again, I'll try to I, – I read about that years ago when it was passed and I haven't looked much at it since. But people should be aware um, – and it just as a practical matter, I mean, you can always ask for their business card. And it seems like it's just any officer, any decent officer will just be happy to give their business card. I mean, as a practical matter. And I guess you can look at their name on their badge, too. Yeah. Though um, in the recent protests when police were shooting rubber bullets and pepper ball guns and other assorted uh, weapons at protesters, um, it was not – they weren't handing out business cards uh, and often their uh, their names were not uh, uh, were not evident. So, I mean, the idea of handing out the business card is so that people uh, have the ability to file a complaint um, about the officer's conduct, or if they feel the stop was unjustified. Um, but in those really extreme situations that we had uh, in Denver um, in late May and early June. Uh, People had a lot of reasons to file complaints, but they uh, they had no idea of the identities of the particular officers. Wow, yeah, it seems like identity should be very 
easy to read and to obtain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that leads us into my next question. If you have been through an encounter with police that you, that you believe where you believe the police were acting abusively or inappropriately, what then are your options? What do you do? Um, well, um, I think uh, there's the option to file a complaint. Um, most law enforcement agencies have internal affairs uh, departments. Um, of course, they're mostly um, they're mostly designed to vindicate the officer. Uh, uh, in Denver, you can file a complaint with the independent monitor. Um, but that still goes to the police first, and the monitor simply has the ability to uh, uh, watch how the investig- how the police investigating themselves how that actually proceeds. Um, you um, might want to uh, write up what happened and put it on social media. Uh, if the abuse is uh, serious enough, you might want to uh, file a lawsuit. So that leads me to ask about your organization. When you litigate cases, is that usually coming from other attorneys or can people write to you directly, ACLU of Colorado or wherever they live, and describe their case? How does that usually work? Oh, people definitely can write to us and and describe their case. Um, There's a section of our website where we invite people if they want to, if they're looking for legal assistance, um, to uh, put their information in, uh, explain what happened, and we look at it. Do you ever give, if you don't have the time to handle a particular case or you feel like you don't have the resources or something, do you ever give out references to other attorneys in the area or is that not something you do? We we don't do referrals to particular attorneys, but um, we we do... Uh, we get many more requests for legal assistance than we have the ability to handle. Um, and so when we do s- send a response that says we can't take your case, we provide uh, a couple page, uh, a couple pages of resources of other places people can go uh, to look for help. So I'm going to ask a little broader question here. So I have this idea that a lot of what we think of as racially motivated bad policing is actually class motivated because I have this idea that a police can kind of a police officer can kind of size somebody up and think, okay, how much of an ability does this person have to make my life hell by suing me, you know, raising hell with the County commissioners or the, or the mayor, whomever. And if that person doesn't have much power, I feel like often that person is at greater risk of, of being abused by police officers. Do you think that that's a, a legitimate concern? How widespread do you think that is? Um, I, I certainly think that um, that social class intersects uh, intersects with the other biases that that motivate police officers. Um, certainly, but uh, I uh, so there are going to be uh, uh, there there are definitely going to be whites that are victims of police misconduct. Um, uh, but I think you'll also you'll also see sometimes uh, the police uh, being blind to social class when interacting with people of color. So you will have sometimes some very prominent uh, uh, very prominent people of color, obviously professionals, um, uh, middle class, upper middle class, uh, who can be victims of racial profiling or police misconduct um, uh, that you would think this, this is not going to happen to uh, a professional person uh, who's white. Well, I've certainly heard many stories, story after story after story, I mean, that would definitely support that belief. Um, so to shift gears, I want to shift gears just a bit and talk about if you're not the person that be, that's being confronted with by police, but you are a bystander. So when can you record audio or video the police legally? Well, I, I think that there's a First Amendment right to record police as they are um, 
carrying out their functions in public. Uh, I think uh, um, what a person can't do is stand so close that they are interfering with the police officer's uh, uh, ability to carry out their duties. So, um, you know, I've sometimes joked that uh, police officers, you know, need at least, you know, six or eight feet to effectively beat someone up. So you need to stand back. Um, but if a police officer is trying to make you stand 20 feet back, I, I don't think they need that much room for doing their jobs. Okay. So an officer might say step back and you might reasonably disagree about how much you should step back. But there are certainly some areas where it's clearly appropriate and if you're real close, that would be inappropriate, and then there might be some gray area. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the ACLU of Colorado, and I believe of other states, have their own recording app, which I actually have on my phone. Are and the idea of this is to record the police, but the video automatically goes to the ACLU servers. So I thought I'd let you explain a bit how that works practically and whether you've had any results from that that, have, that you've followed up on. Um, actually, I think that that mobile justice app um, uh, is, uh, uh, we have not really um, uh, gotten a lot of videos. Um, I think people used to joke that we had more, we got more videos of people's cats and their feet than we did of uh, actual incidents. But um, I'm wondering if uh, some of the need for that uh, has diminished uh, because a couple things have happened. One is, I think, the one of the reasons for the video automatically going to the ACLU uh, was that uh, there were so many reports of police interfering with people's ability to do recordings, confiscating the phones, deleting the recordings. And I think in the years since that app came out, um, it's much more clearly established and accepted by police departments, at least in their training now, that people have the right to record and they know they're not supposed to confiscate the phone or delete the recording. Um, so I think there's, uh, there's less need for that. Also, people's phones now are more likely to be, um, uh, they might have automatic syncing with the cloud. So right. even if their phone's gone, the recording is still accessible. Um, and I think people also, uh, as demonstrated with the recent events in Denver, um, there was a lot of video recorded of police attacks on protesters, um, and, uh, people were accessing all kinds of social media channels. Um, uh, they didn't, they didn't need to send it to the ACLU in particular. Okay. But there is going, I understand that there's already, a. Uh, a version two of that app in development. Uh, so maybe the app will be catching up with the times. Okay. So if you are accused on the, on YouTube, there's this great video, or at least I really like it by a law professor named James Duane and it's titled don't talk to the police. So I was wondering if you just wanted to add anything to add about the wisdom of not talking to police without legal representation. Um, you know, the trouble with that kind of advice uh, in the abstract is that uh, it actually uh, plays out very, very differently depending on who you are and your place in society. Uh, for example, um, our client in Colorado Springs uh, took that advice of don't talk to police, and he wound up... Uh, handcuffed the victim of an illegal detention, an illegal search. Um, and uh, certainly he had no ability to access a lawyer uh, before that happened. Um, well, maybe we should modify it to don't talk to police unless you're giving them your name or you're asking them, am I free to go or am I under arrest? Those kinds of basic things. Um, but, you know, you don't want to say, where were you last night? That kind of thing without a lawyer. Is that basically, that's accurate, right? Well, um, it, you know, uh, if the police are investigating, are, are coming because they're investigating crime and they think you're a suspect, it probably 
um, would not be advisable um, to say things that um, might wind up being used against you in some way. Um, but, you know, it's true that people sometimes call police because they need the help of the police. And so in those situations, uh, they probably do need to talk to the police. Okay. Okay. Good point. Um, so maybe the way to state it, it's, it's a good general idea, but it has some important exceptions. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk briefly about criminal justice reforms. Now, you've mentioned the new Colorado law, which is an important piece of police reform legislation. In fact, as far as I know, it's the most far-reaching and important reform in the United States, though maybe there's some state elsewhere that's done something very comparable. So do you want to just briefly summarize the other elements of that law that you haven't mentioned so far? Um, there's really um, there's a lot of provisions in this law. Um, uh, one is the universal requirement for um, body cameras. Uh, there are provisions for body camera footage to become public um, within a relatively short time after a complaint um, that the camera footage uh, is of an incident uh, in which there's a complaint of police misconduct. Um, there are these reporting requirements uh, that I've mentioned a couple times in this conversation. Um, there are uh, provisions to deal with uh, police officers um, that uh, leave a police force under a cloud because they're being investigated for misconduct and then they go on to another police force and another police force. Um, the, the provision that is really, uh, is really amazing and in which um, this has not been duplicated anywhere is um, is it addresses an issue uh, that uh, I need to back up and explain. Uh, everybody knows that uh, you have the ability to sue for damages or to get injunctive relief for violations of your federal constitutional rights. And most, liti- most litigation alleging police misconduct is based on a federal law that allows a lawsuit for violations of uh, federal civil federal constitutional rights. We also have a state constitution, but there has been no statute that allows for people to sue for violations of the state constitution. Now in Colorado, um, police officers employed by um, local units of government, cities and counties, Police officers can be sued for damages or injunctive relief for violations of the state constitution. And in, a set, in, in analyzing damages cases, there is no um, a, a major immunity doctrine that applies in federal law is expressly rejected as a matter of Colorado law. Um, and that immunity in federal law it's called qualified immunity, um, has been the subject of a lot of discussion. Uh, there are justices on the Supreme Court that have called for its reexamination. Uh, the people calling for abolition of that doctrine uh, are uh, a pretty amazing coalition of organizations from both the left and the right, liberals and conservatives. Um, the Cato Institute is one of the organizations that has been in the lead criticizing this doctrine. Um, but uh, so far, the Supreme Court has declined to re-examine it. But now in Colorado, you can sue uh, um, county sheriffs, you can sue police officers for violating your rights under the state constitution. And this um, much criticized doctrine of qualified immunity will not apply. So it's possible that we are going to see um, uh, more lawsuits uh, that rely on the state constitution, and we might see more development of uh, of state constitutional law. Um, what does Article Two, Section Seven mean in this situation or that situation? Article Two, Section Seven is the uh, the state version of the Fourth Amendment. 
Well, congratulations to your organization. I know the ACLU here was very active in that in the passage of that legislation, drafting and passage of the legislation. So, and in my book, that's one of the most important things to come out of the Colorado legislature uh, in my lifetime, I think. And so, you know, thank you. Uh, well done on that one. Thank you. Um, do you have any additional? I mean, I know you, we could talk about other reforms for days on end. Do you have any leading areas where you think the next reform is most important? So my, my quick list is independent police oversight, the use of plea bargains in cajole, in bay, I think forcing people to take plea bar, to, to give up their right to jury, sentencing and the conditions of incarceration. What do you, is there one or is there a top one or two things that you think we need to look well, at next? Well, I think, I think another thing is um, uh, in pretrial justice, um, you know, our county jails, a lot of people don't know the difference between jails and prisons. Um, prisons uh, are where people go to serve a, a sentence, usually for a felony. But county jails uh, are where poor people go who are charged with crimes but haven't been convicted yet. And the reason they're locked up uh, without having been convicted is that uh, their freedom pending trial depends on them posting a monetary sum, and they are too poor to post that monetary sum. So the county jails are filled with people who are innocent in the eyes of the law because they haven't been convicted, yet they are locked up solely because they are poor. And I think that that is an area um, for criminal justice reform. I, I had the impression that there had already been some bail reform in Colorado. Is that totally wrong, or or has there been any, and there's still more needed, or what, what's the status of that? I, I, I guess I'd say there was a statute in 2013 that was advertised as bail reform, uh, and uh, a lot of the provisions in it uh, were more aspirational than um, uh, than had had the teeth that actually make that reform happen. And since then, there have been a few, um, a few measures that have passed. Um, uh, certainly, um, there's been a statute passed that abolishes monetary bail for certain very low-level crimes. So that was a big advance, I think, in the 2019 legislative session. Um, so that helps, but it's, it's only a, a little piece of the problem. I know that you were involved, your organization was involved in at least one lawsuit against Denver police regarding their use of force during the George Floyd protest, which you've already mentioned briefly. Mm -hmm. Do you want to say more about the nature of that suit and how that ended up? Um, well, it hasn't ended up. It's just started. And, you know, litigation takes um, ridiculously long. Oh, I thought there had been some kind of settlement already. Oh, you know, um, there, there was another suit that was filed. Um, first, uh, and then when we filed our lawsuit, um, yeah, there were some uh, misleading news reports that said there was a settlement of our lawsuit, but it was confused. The and the first lawsuit isn't settled, but um, but the Denver and the plaintiffs agreed on the terms of um, uh, of a stipulation about what Denver would agree to refrain from doing during the pendency of the litigation. So the AP reported it as a settlement and, and actually named our plaintiffs, uh, but that was a mistake. So nothing mm -hmm. has happened so far in our lawsuit except the, um, the Denver has agreed to waive the formal service uh, and we're just getting started. Okay, but the general background for listeners is during some of these protests, police fired projectiles and used chemical agents against protesters, um, including against some reporters mm. in town. And so when I was looking at the video of this, I was very concerned and I felt like they were, it was a wildly disproportionate response. Um, but I guess we'll see what the courts say as you, as these lawsuits proceed. And I think there's other lawsuits besides, beside what the ACLU was involved in that are also ongoing. Uh, yeah. And I, I think we can probably expect um, many more lawsuits. There are hundreds and hundreds of people um, were uh, uh, struck by rubber bullets, pepper ball guns. Uh, uh, actually, a, 
uh, an incredible variety of uh, police uh, uh, gadgets. Um, and, um, and certainly a lot, hundreds of people have potential claims for damages, uh, not only for violation of their First Amendment rights, but for uh, the application of this um, a disproportionate degree of force. Uh, and there's there people have lost eyes, had, you know, um, open wounds. Uh, it's really incredible what, uh, what happened those first four or five days of the George Floyd protests in Denver. And the thing is, this was going on all over the country. The same kind of uh, really almost open season for police uh, uh, attacks on protesters who are protesting police misconduct and police brutality. Yeah, it was certainly ironic is one word that comes to mind. There's many other words that come to mind, but yeah, definitely. A, well, I was, I was quite upset watching some of the video coming out of Denver and elsewhere. Yeah. And you should be. And judge Jackson, who um, was the first judge in Denver to, um, to hear a request for a temporary restraining order said he was very upset by what he saw on video so he was he he held a hearing immediately and gave the parties like uh, less than an hour to draft proposed orders um, and he signed an order um, forbidding some of the worst of the police conduct okay well good that's a good start what what should people do to follow the ACLU just sign up for the ACLU's mailing list um Sure. Uh, the ACLU is on Twitter. Uh, we're on Facebook. And I'll have to say, uh, I hope you'll understand, knowing I've been here for a quarter century, that these are formats that I'm not as familiar with um, as, uh, as my colleagues in our communications department. But um, we have a website, uh, aclu-co.org. And I think if you go there uh, or you look for us on Facebook, uh, you can uh, you can uh, get the communications that come from our office. Okay. Well, thank you. Our guest today has been Mark Silverstein of the Colorado ACLU. Thanks, thanks again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, sure. Thanks for inviting me. This has been the Self and Society Podcast. For more, please see ariarmstrong.com. Mm-hmm.